Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would convince us from your word that you will raise the dead. And Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding into when that will happen and what we should expect. But most importantly, Lord, we pray that the confidence that our bodies will be raised and we will be glorified like the Lord Jesus, we pray that that would give us courage now, that it would free us from anxiety, and that we would be able to courageously, at peace, love one another. We ask that you do these things by your spirit, through your word, in the name of Jesus, amen. I remember the night it happened, and I'm ashamed at the way that I responded. Something woke me in the night, and it sounded to me like there was someone in our home. And, and this is so shameful, so cowardly, but I thought to myself, if I stay in bed, maybe they'll leave me alone. And then my next thought, praise God, as a result of uh, things that I was been reading and no doubt the work of the Spirit and the truth of the Scriptures, my next thought was along the lines of, if whoever this is in my house hurts my wife or my children, my life on the other side of that is not worth living. And so I popped out of bed and I grabbed the baseball bat by the bed and I began making my patrol through the house, flipping on lights, ready to take on whatever was there and praise God, no one was in our home. Being faithful to God matters more than staying alive. Being faithful to God matters more than protecting our own skin. To be faithful to God, we need courage. And the question that I wanna ask is, where does that courage come from? What enables this kind of courage? And I wanna to suggest today that the hope of the resurrection and the hope of the, the millennial reign of Christ and the glorified state, this enables courage, the kind of courage that I'm talking about. So the main point of the sermon today is going to be that the Bible teaches the resurrection of the body from Genesis to Revelation. Now there's some implications of that main point. One of the implications that I'm gonna go after is when the Bible locates the resurrection of believers. And, and you know, if you get a chance to preach in chapel, you might as well swing for the fences, right? <laughs> so if, if I connect and, and my home run swing uh, materializes and the ball sails out of the yard, when we walk out of here today, nobody that was here or nobody having heard this sermon will identify as a post-millennialist. That would be a home run. A grand slam to win the game would be not only are you not post-mill, you're also not ah-mill, right? You're pre-mill, as the Bible teaches. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm gonna contend. You think I'm kidding. In all seriousness, my fallback, my fallback hope, that's what I, I really would like to persuade you, but my fallback hope, you know, if you, if you wanna hit a home run, you gotta make solid contact. So 
If I don't knock the ball out of the yard, if I just make good solid contact and maybe hit a line drive, which my dad will tell you I never hit many home runs, a lot of line drives, a lot of base hits. If I get a base hit, you will be confident that God is going to raise the dead. You will be confident that the resurrection of your body frees you to be courageous, frees you to be free from anxiety and to love others. Uh, where we're going, the, the way that I'm gonna come out this, um, uh, Dr. York mentioned that uh, I am called a professor of biblical theology and I define biblical theology as the attempt to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. And I think the biblical authors often communicate their perspective in chiastic structures. And so my sermon has a chiastic structure. So what I just talked about, uh, resurrection and hope, uh, you can identify that with, if you want, with this side of the balcony over here. And, and I'm gonna give you a spatial uh, kind of outline that maybe will help you to remember where we are and where we're going. So resurrection, hope, and the way it re results in courage, we can start there in the balcony. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to take us through some texts in the Old Testament, uh, and we can identify it with this uh, wing of the chapel on the, on the ground floor that has to do with the Old Testament's teaching on the resurrection. And then when we're at the center of the chiastic structure, we'll be in, in the book of Revelation, particularly in Revelation chapter 20. And then I'm gonna try to corroborate, corroborate what we see there from other texts in the New Testament, resurrection of believers in the New Testament. And then we'll conclude on this side in the balcony with um, resurrection hope and the way that that enables courage, freedom from anxiety, and our ability to love others. So that's. That's where we're going. God w really will raise the dead. He really will raise the dead. And the Bible teaches it from Genesis to Revelation. If you'd like, you can open to Genesis chapter one. Um, my PhD student, Tom Sculthorpe, brought this to my attention. And when he called my attention to this, it blew my mind. And I'm gonna suggest this to you and I'm gonna encourage you to be a Berean and search the scriptures and see if these things are so. Uh, I'm gonna start with something that the Lord Jesus said that I think is informed by what I'm about to point to here in Genesis 1. Uh, you remember that when the Greeks came, they wanted to see Jesus, and uh, they, they got the, his disciples got to him, and he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and he's talking about going to be crucified. And then his next words were, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And he's talking about himself as a grain of wheat that is going to die and be buried in the ground and then rise from the dead and bring forth much fruit. And the, there's a hope that I think runs throughout the Bible that associates resurrection with the third day. And in Genesis chapter one, Moses is reporting the Lord's speech in his his speaking of the world into existence. And in verse 13, we, we read, it was evening and it, there was morning, the third day. And on that third day in Genesis 1:11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. What's gonna happen with a plant that yields a seed? The seed is gonna fall into the ground and die, and then it's gonna bring forth fruit. 
This is the way the Lord is describing this, and the Lord has seen fit to associate this with the third day. Now, just in terms of the days of creation, the first three days the Lord forms, and then the second three days he fills, days four through six, and the living creatures don't come into existence until the fifth and sixth days, down in verses 20 and following. And it seems to me that there's a difference between vegetation that's associated with the forming of the first three days and then living creatures. So I don't think that like the dying and rising of the seed on the third day is any kind of blot of death on the original unfallen, very good creation. But just a couple of chapters later, and, and I would just note here that if, if, you were, if we were to read together through Genesis 1 through 3, very closely, very carefully, in Hebrew, slowly, meditatively, we would see that there are all these concepts introduced in Genesis 1 and 2 that are then developed in Genesis 3 and really throughout the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament. And one of those things that's happening takes place as the Lord speaks to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. So again, it's, it's Moses is reporting what the Lord said about the third day of creation with the, with the plants yielding seed. And then Moses is reporting what the Lord said in Genesis 3.15 when he writes, the Lord saying to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. I wish the translations would just give us the word seed, not the word offspring, because I think it matters that the Lord is speaking of the offspring as seed. What's the, what's the association? Well, we've already seen from Genesis 1, there's some kind of dying and rising thing going on with seed in Genesis 1, 11 through 13. And, and in keeping with that way of thinking, if, if you wanna look over at Leviticus chapter 15, you, you, you may be familiar with the way that the, uh, the whole tabernacle, clean and unclean, holy and, and common things work. If, if anything comes into contact with death, uncleanness results. So to transgress results in you being unclean, but if you come into contact with the result of transgression, like death, if somebody in the same tent with you dies, you are unclean as a result of that. And this extends to life fluids, bodily fluids. So when life fluids leave the body, they are no longer vitally connected with the body, they are now dead, and to come into contact with those life fluids renders you unclean. And so in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 16, the ESV renders this, if a man has, and then if you're looking at the text, you can see what it says there. I think that's, I think that's an unfortunate rendering. Literally, the text says, if a man has a lying down of seed, if, if a lying down of seed goes out from him, that's literally what it says. So if, if seed leaves the man's body, that seed is somehow not alive, and the text goes on, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. So as a result of contact with this seed that has left the body, it's conceived as being dead, and your body is unclean as a result of your contact with it. Verse 18, if a man lies with a woman and has a lying down of seed, again, uh, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. I think that what is informing this is that it's, the, it's as though the, the womb of the woman is the ground and the seed has fallen into the ground and died and fruit is being born. 
be fruitful and multiply, the Lord said to Adam and Eve in the beginning. So I think that in, in the way that, that Moses is describing these things, there's a death and resurrection component in the conception of children. And that death and resurrection component in the conception of children is compounded if the woman is barren. And this was first drawn to my attention by another one of my PhD students, Mitch Chase, who, who pointed out to me that in a number of places in the Old and New Testaments, there's an association between a barren woman giving birth and dead corpses being resurrected. So just to draw your attention to a couple of instances of this, in, in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, at the end of verse 5 we read, the barren has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. So the barren has given birth, and then the next verse, 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings low and he exalts. Uh, sorry, he brings down to Sheol and raises up. My eyes did the text critical thing where they skip a line there. Verse, verse six, uh, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Barren woman gives birth. God kills, God resurrects, essentially is the idea. And I'm not gonna take the time to do it now. We might get to it in a second if we have time. But over in Romans 4, 17 through 19, this is exactly the way that Paul is talking about the birth of Isaac to barren Sarah. And the author of Hebrews does the same thing in Hebrews 11 uh, when, when he speaks of Sarah, literally, receiving power for the foundation of the seed. The barren woman is giving birth and it's like resurrection from the dead. It's like a dead body being raised to life. Now, I, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting here is that there is an inner logic that informs the perspective from which Moses is writing, and it's a perspective that he learned from God's words. As, as Moses, however it was that Moses came to know what God did when he created the world, however it was that Moses came to know what God said to the serpent, God's words have shaped Moses' worldview. And that worldview seems to contain ideas like this. God did not create the world to surrender dominion over it to Satan. So this implies God's gonna take control back. God did not create the world for it to be a graveyard filled with dead corpses. And this entails the idea, God is gonna raise the dead. If God is going to triumph in the world, God is going to raise the dead. As we, as we continue through the Old Testament, I think we see various indicators that this is exactly the way Moses is thinking about the way things work. And it's one of the assumptions that, that the Old Testament authors learn from Moses and that the, the people in the Old Covenant who have circumcised hearts, it's, it's part of the furniture of their mind. It's an element of their theological worldview that God is going to raise the dead. And I think the reason it's not explicitly articulated the way that I'm articulating it is because it's so basic. It's so foundational. They take it for granted. They assume they don't need to spell it out explicitly, but sometimes they, they go ahead and do that, like Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, where the Lord says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. And you can hear 
from 1 Samuel 2, 6, how um, Hannah was probably informed by this text. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And then there are other components of the story that I think point in the direction of resurrection. Things like this concern when people get near death, a concern to be buried in the land. And in some cases, a concern to be taken up out of Egypt to be buried in the land. You know, if, you, if you're thinking that when your body expires, that's it, well, it doesn't matter where you're buried because you're done with this body and you're done with this world. I think a concern for where you're buried only, only resonates, it only indicates faith if you're believing I'm gonna be raised from the dead and I'm going to enjoy this promised land that has been given, has been declared by God that it's going to be ours. And that's exactly the perspective that we see the, the characters in the narrative operating and on and Moses uh, communicating to his audience. Now, one component of this, a curious component, and, and here I really wanna urge you to search the scriptures. And I wanna urge you to not be satisfied with theological perspectives that don't account for all the data in the text. You know, don't, don't believe crazy things, don't be weird, but don't settle for a theological conclusion that doesn't account for things that are right there in the text. So I wanna point to some things in, in the Old Testament that I think other eschatological perspectives on the resurrection the post-mill perspective, the amill perspective, I think they don't account for these details. And, it, and if you are, if you hold that perspective and you know of a way to account for this, please come tell me. But so far, I'm unsatisfied by their answers. Uh, look with me, if you will, at Isaiah chapter 26. And as Isaiah prophesies, he says in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 14, speaking of these, these uh, rebellious seed of the serpent, he says of them, they are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. They're not gonna be raised? That seems to be what it says. Now we know from Daniel chapter 12 verse two that there's gonna be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, righteous and wicked, Daniel 12 two, Everybody's gonna be raised. So what is Isaiah doing saying that these people are not going to be raised? Let me give you another text that I think points in the same direction. Psalm chapter one, Psalm one, in verse six. You know, blessed is the man who does not do these things, but he does this. He's like a tree, that's interesting. Yielding its fruit in season. It's really interesting uh, language and comparison. Everything that he does prospers, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And then Psalm 1, verse 5. The ESV renders this, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. But the word translated stand, you could translate this rise. And in the Greek translation of this, it really sounds like the, the Greek translators understanding this to mean the, the wicked will not rise in the judgment. The wicked will not be raised in the judgment. And I think it fits with what we just saw there in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 14. So there's this idea in these two texts that the wicked will not be raised. And then I'm just gonna mention one other thing from the Old Testament that has to do with resurrection hope 
so we're, we're, we're still in this first wing of pews over here, resurrection hope in the Old Testament. And, and I think that, that uh, what, I, what Ezekiel prophesies in Ezekiel 36 through the end of his book really, really maps well onto what we see in the New Testament. In Ezekiel 36, uh, Ezekiel speaks of how the Lord is going to put a new heart and a new spirit. It's almost like a, a new inner life into people. Uh, he's going to make them alive almost spiritually. And then in Ezekiel 37, we see this valley of dry bones, these dead corpses. And those, those dead corpses are raised to life. And then they are restored to their land. And later in Ezekiel 37, uh, my servant David will be king over them. And then in the next chapter, Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel starts talking about Gog of the land of Magog. And, and it, it, it's language that's reminiscent of the book of Job when the Lord says that he's going to put hooks in his jaws and draws him out. And in Job, you know, the Lord does that to Leviathan. He puts hooks in Leviathan's jaw, uh, jaws. And I think it creates an association between this satanic figure in Job and Gog of Magog. And Gog of Magog in Ezekiel 38, around verses 8 through 11, says that he's going to go up against the land that is restored from war, against a people dwelling in unwalled villages without bars or gates. It really sounds like these people have beaten their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. We don't live in that world. Just last night, while my family was at church, the catalytic converter was stolen from my son's automobile. We don't live in a land of unwalled villages without bars and gates. We live in a, in a world where you've got to have passwords. Don't you hate passwords? It, it makes me think of uh, that C.S. Lewis line, you know, if I find myself, find within myself desires uh, that nothing in this world can satisfy. I know that I was made for a better world. I know that I was made for a world without passwords. We, we know that we were made for a world where people don't kill each other, where, where we're not going to need weapons to fight off the bad guys. We're not going to need locks on the doors to keep them out. We don't live in that world. We don't live in the world where the swords have been beaten into plowshares. I think that's a problem for the realized millenarians. We're in the millennium now. Oh, actually, it looks to me like in the millennium, no walls on the villages, no gates on the towns, no passwords on the computers. Uh, as, you, as you proceed through that, what happens is uh, Gog of Magog he attacks God's people, he's destroyed, and then Ezekiel goes into this vision in Ezekiel 40 through 48 that looks like the new heavens and new earth. It's a new temple which symbolizes the new creation. And it, it maps perfectly onto what we see in Revelation 19 through 22. Uh, there's, there's, there's the resurrection in Revelation 20 as we're about to see, and then there's a final, they, they have a, a thousand year reign of peace, and then there's a final rebellion of Gog and Magog, and then the new temple in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, there are other things that I could point to, like Hosea 6, speaking of how the Lord is going to raise his people on the third day. And uh, we, I've already mentioned Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. So um, I'm going I'm to be content to leave it there for resurrection hope in the Old Testament. And I'm suggesting that the Old Testament teaches the resurrection. And that Moses, this is not a, a late development that they had to evolve their way up to. And only very late 
When you get to Daniel, late in the process, after most of the books have been written, only then do they finally come to the view that God is gonna raise the dead. No, I think from the very beginning, from creation, they're expecting God to raise the dead. From the fall, I should say. From the moment there's a fall into sin and the moment death takes hold in the world, the people of faith are looking for God to reverse that and resurrect the dead. Now, let's think together about what the book of Revelation says about the millennium and the resurrection. So I just wanna invite you to turn to Revelation and I, I wanna draw your attention to some features of the texts, some details that I think point to the conclusion that the Old Testament expectation, in particular that the wicked will not rise, is, is assumed, embraced, believed by John and a reconciliation between like Isaiah 26 and Daniel 12 2 is, is offered by John. And I think that reconciliation was assumed by the author of Psalm 1, maybe David and uh, Isaiah. So let me first draw your attention to Revelation chapter five, verse 10, where as they're praising the lamb, they say of the Lord Jesus that he has made his people a kingdom and priests to our God, and then it says, and they shall reign on the earth. I think that's interesting. And then in the next chapter, I would just draw your attention to the way that in verse nine of Revelation six, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Now I'm drawing your attention to this because these people have been martyred. They've been put to death. And we're seeing them apparently in the presence of God in heaven. And they're, and, and, and they're slain for the word of God and for the witness, you could say for the testimony they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're looking for vindication. They're looking for God to say, those who were faithful to me were in the right, and you people that put them to death, you now face my judgment. That seems to be what they're looking for, right? Now, the reason I'm pointing to this in part is because there's a prominent amillennial view that, that's, that treats the resurrection in Revelation chapter 20, verses four and five that we're, we're working our way toward as the moment when God's people are vindicated, but it's not a bodily resurrection from the dead. It's a coming to life in the presence of God, like you're entering into the intermediate state in heaven. And what I'm suggesting to you is right here in Revelation six, there are people in the intermediate state, they're dissatisfied. In fact, they sound like Paul. You remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he says, we don't wanna be unclothed, to be, at, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, but we don't wanna be unclothed out of the body. We wanna be given our new resurrection body. There's this dissatisfaction with that intermediate state, even though you're in the presence of God. I think it's because people were made to be embodied. We were created to be embodied. Here in Revelation 6, verse 11, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there's this number of martyrs that has, has to be filled up and then these folks will be vindicated. Uh, just a few pages over, Revelation chapter 12, let me draw your attention to verse 11 of Revelation 12, 
where it says of the faithful that they have conquered Satan. He's identified back in verse 9, the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Uh, In verse 11, um, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So they conquer Satan, even though in terms of the book of Revelation, Satan conquers them. If you look at Revelation 13, verse seven, the the beast that the dragon, Satan, is gonna summon up from the the deep in in the preceding verses, verse seven, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, meaning put them to death. So there's this irony where in the same way that the lamb was slain and thereby conquered, so also the people of the lamb, they're slain and thereby conquer. So it looks like a defeat and it turns out to be a victory in in both the case of Jesus and in in the case of those who take up their cross and follow the Lord Jesus. And I think also in, in the book of Revelation, John is teaching that whereas God seals his servants and protects them from his wrath, Satan is imitating God and he tries to seal his servants by getting people to take the mark of the beast and thereby shield them from his wrath, but he can't protect them from God's wrath. And whereas Satan can kill God's people, God's gonna raise them from the dead. God is gonna bring about the death of Satan's people and their resurrection is gonna be unto wrath, unto damnation. And, And so when we get to the end of Revelation 12, notice how in verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman who who in this chapter has given birth to the Lord Jesus and went off to make war on the rest of her seed. The dragon is making war on the seed of the woman. And as we proceed through this context, the way that he's making war on the seed of the woman is by summoning up the beast who looks like a fake Christ and, and then getting people to trust in his fake Christ. And then he's got this other beast in 1311 and following, who's kind of like a fake Holy Spirit. So Satan, it's like he's doing a false trinity. The dragon is putting himself in the place of God the Father. His, his first beast with the, the, the head that seemed to have a mortal wound, but it was healed. It didn't redeem anybody. It wasn't an actual death and resurrection. It wasn't an actual salvation, but everybody worships the beast. And then he's got his Holy Spirit who is, who is causing people to worship the beast. And look at what he's doing in verse 14. It says in Revelation 13, verse 14, by the signs that this, another beast in verse 11, by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So Satan, I would say, is deceiving the nations with the result that they persecute Christians. Look at verse uh, 15. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And then verses 16 through 18 speak of the number of the beast and how uh, those who take it are marked on the right hand or the forehead, and you can't buy or sell if you don't uh, take this. So it seems to me that Satan is persecuting Christians after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which I would argue is symbolically presented in Revelation 12, one through five, death, resurrection, and ascension. 
Satan is persecuting Christians by deceiving the nations so that they put those who are faithful to the Lord Jesus to death. Look, at, look back at verse 8 of Revelation 13. All who dwell on earth will worship Satan's beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This is where uh, courage comes in because look at the next verse there in verses 9 and 10. It's because we believe in the resurrection of the dead that we can obey, verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. It's like John is saying, God has ordained that there will be a certain number of martyrs. The number of those martyrs is going to be filled up. And we need to be so confident in God, in the resurrection of the dead, that if our number is called and we're to be taken captive, we're not wringing our hands, oh, what's gonna happen? Or if, if it's our turn to be martyred, we're not, we're not devastated and completely undone, but rather we're prepared to die well. We're prepared to die like the martyrs that we read about died. Look at the last words there of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. If it's ordained, it's going to happen. Endure, have faith. As we make our way forward, I would just note that in Revelation 15, look at Revelation 15 verse two, John writes, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And back in chapter four, he's seen the one seated on the throne and before the throne, there's this sea of glass. So this is clearly a heavenly throne room scene. And then look what he goes on to say, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. So this, again, I think works against that amillennial proposal that the resurrection in Revelation 20 verse four and five is about entrance into the eternal state. John's already showing, I'm, I'm sorry, into the intermediate state. John's already showing these folks alive in the presence of God in heaven. And then as we continue, I would draw your attention now to Revelation chapter 20. And in verses one through three, um, Satan is seized and bound and put in a pit and the pit is shut and sealed. And then in verse three, you see those words, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now one, one objection to the view that I'm arguing for here, the premillennial view, goes like this. This is the most symbolic book in the Bible. And, and then basically the person proceeds to say it's so symbolic, you can't understand it. And my simple response to that is, the symbols symbolize something. And if we study the book and we read the symbols in light of one another, I think we can make sense of what the symbols are intended to symbolize. So we don't have to be, pro as N.T. Wright sort of mockingly says, we don't have to be projected into premillennial literalism we don't have to hold that there's a literal dragon and there's a literal chain and all this business. You can make this as symbolic as you want it to be. Who's the, who's the, the dragon? Satan. What has he been doing? He's been deceiving the nations so that they kill Christians. What's the situation now? It's different from chapter 12 when he was thrown down to the earth and there's this statement, woe to you, earth, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath and he knows that his time is short. That's what Revelation 12 says. Here, that activity is shut off. He can't do that anymore. So read the symbols in, in relationship to one another 
And Satan is no longer being allowed to deceive the nations until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then Revelation chapter 20, verse four. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. I'm gonna pause here and a little bit tongue in cheek, I would say it'd be nice to be an amillennialist. It'd be easy to be an amillennialist. You sort of have the prestige of the greats of church history. You can kind of associate with, with the theological heavyweights. The problem is it's just not satisfying. So here's what I would propose is failed amillennial interpretation number one. When it says that these people came to life, they, some of them propose, that means they were born again. But look at why they got killed. They were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Unregenerate, unregenerate people don't get martyred for the cause of Jesus. That's not the way it works. So I think that interpretation fails. It says of these people, they were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those are the folks that we saw beheaded or, or under the altar back in Revelation 6. Those are the folks that we saw faithful in the persecution in Revelation 13. Notice how the text goes on to say there, those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. It's an explicit reference back to Revelation 13, 16 through 18. And these are the same folks that were there beside the sea of glass in Revelation 15. And then it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse five then reads, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And uh, N.T. Wright, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he goes and studies every instance of, of, of this root that we translate into English, uh, resurrection, every instance in ancient Greek, anywhere you could find it. And he says of, that, of the meaning of that word, it always refers to bodily life after spiritual life after death. So the idea is you die physically and then you're alive somewhere in some kind of way. And then this word resurrection always refers to the return to bodily life after that intermediate life after death. Wright wants to propose a radical linguistic innovation because he doesn't want to be a premillennialist. He recognizes if this is about resurrection, there's a re resurrection before the thousand years and then another resurrection after the thousand years. And, and so he, he proposes a radical linguistic innovation. I don't think this is a radical linguistic innovation in part because of what we see elsewhere in the New Testament. There's a lot more that we could say here, but my time is slipping away and I want to substantiate what I'm saying from other statements in the New Testament. So let me just um, call your attention first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I wanna draw your attention to verses 20 through 23. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection is a real thing. The first fruits, isn't that interesting? It almost sounds like a, like a grain of wheat has fallen into the ground and died and brought forth fruit. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, and then he's gonna say in a few verses later, in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I think that's referring to the resurrection of the rest of the dead. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter four. We see something similar here. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive, and so forth. The dead in Christ will rise first. And I think this understanding that, the, that those who belong to Christ, the dead in Christ will rise first at the beginning of the thousand years also explains a number of interesting statements in the New Testament. And, and what I have in mind are statements like Revela- uh, sorry, Luke chapter 14, verse 14, where the Lord Jesus, he's at this dinner party and he's He's sort of rebuking the the guy who threw the banquet. And and then he he tells him what he should have done. And then he says in Luke 14, 14, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's almost as though there's gonna be a resurrection of the just and then a resurrection of the unjust. And then we have other statements that move in that direction like uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 35, where the Lord Jesus says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. And if you've studied Greek, you know that the dead there is a substantival adjective that we could bring out the sense of by saying resurrection from the dead ones. It's almost like the first resurrection and the rest of the dead are left there to be raised at the end of the thousand years. Very similar idea over in Philippians chapter three, when Paul says, He says uh, in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead ones. Now, what does that mean? Resurrection from the dead ones. Some people aren't gonna be raised. It seems to be that that would account for what's going on. And it also seems that that would fit with what we see in Revelation 20 and in places like Isaiah 26 and Psalm 1. One more idea here on this front. In the, in the rest of the New Testament, as I've already kind of indicated, the vindication of God's people comes at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So yes, the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not been consummated. It will be consummated when he comes. And you can see this all over the New Testament. The coming of the Lord Jesus is when God's people will be vindicated. In fact, Paul says in Titus chapter two, verse 13, he he speaks of how we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. That's the blessed hope, the return of Christ. So I would suggest to you that if you are not in a resurrection body, you are not in the millennium. That means you're not in the realized millennium and you're not in the millennium after which Christ is going to return. You're not in a, po- you're not in a, in a situation that's gonna lead to the post-millennial view being true. The post-millennial view is that the kingdom success happens before the return of Christ. The amill view is that we, we're realizing the millennium now and then Christ will return. 
I would suggest that if you think that the resurrection comes after the return of Christ, you're a premillennialist. Now, there are questions that, that we can sort out, that we can discuss. You don't, you don't have to have an answer for everything. I'd be happy to discuss the quote-unquote problems with premillennialism, but I think the order is really clear. I think, I think it's clear that the kingdom is consummated at the return of Christ, that, the, that there are going to be two resurrections in Revelation 20 and Isaiah 26 and Psalm 1 and Daniel 12 and 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and all those other statements that we've discussed. There will be a resurrection. So to conclude now, let me urge you to hope in the resurrection of the body and to let this hope, let this hope make you courageous. There's this great quotation in G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, where he talks about what courage means. Chesterton writes, courage means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. You can be ready to die because you know God's gonna raise the dead. Chesterton goes on, he that will lose his life, he's really quoting John 12 here, paraphrasing it. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it. And then he says, this paradox is the whole principle of courage, even of quite earthly or quite brutal courage. A man cut off by the sea may save his life if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he, he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and he will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. I remember a few years ago when um, Dr. Schreiner's wife was in a, a terrible accident and I happened to be sitting in his office with him when it was not clear what she was going to be like if she lived, if she recovered. And I said to him, how are you doing? And his words to me spoke the truth of what I'm talking about here. He said to me, we don't live for this life. We live for the next life. We live for the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the joy of studying it together. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be those who are so amazed at your goodness that you would reveal yourself to us in your word, that we give ourselves to the study of the original languages that we might know exactly what you inspired these authors to write. And we pray, Lord, that you would satisfy us with your steadfast love that's communicated to us through your revelation of yourself by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus. And we ask that you would make us courageous because we believe that you will raise the dead. We pray that you would free us from all anxieties because we're confident that the Lord Jesus will make all things new. And we pray, Lord, that this would also free us to be loving, self-sacrificial, situationally aware, others-centered, because we don't have to worry about ourselves, because we believe that you will raise the dead. 
We love you. We thank you for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.